Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today's episode is part two in my three-part series on edible gardens. This episode covers information on a variety of different herbs, salad greens, leafy greens and parsnips. Yum! Just a couple of quick homesteading updates before I get on to the main topic this week. In terms of bees, we've had a lot of cold weather, so I haven't really been able to check on them. I've just had to kind of trust that everything's going okay. Uh, today, actually, we got to about 50 degrees. It's supposed to get a little warmer, but we have a lot of rain. And I was able to pop out before the rain really started. And there was a small amount of activity at each of the hives. So fingers crossed that everyone in the colonies are doing well. Um, I am riddled with anxiety this week because I have had two bad bee dreams in a row. My first one was this terrible dream where a beekeeper who I really respect, I won't name them, um, I don't have their permission so (laughs) I don't want to name and shame them as someone in my dream, but um, I had this dream that they came round and they offered to look at my winter colonies and I was delighted to have their expertise, you know, check out how I was doing. And they basically just hefted the back of my hives to get kind of a feel on the weight and um, told me that at least one hive was dead and it was all my fault. And when I tried to get them to explain what I'd done wrong, they basically just said everything, everything, (laughs) everything last year was wrong. And um, that was almost all they would say. And I was absolutely devastated. And I was very relieved when I woke up and realized that it was a dream. And then last night I had a dream that um, the colonies were actually doing really well and the bees were flying around it was a beautiful day and I ran inside to get my bee suit and I was so excited and then um as I was running inside I guess I ran through like a group of bees or something and I had like seven stings all down one leg through my yoga pants and like they got under my waistband and they they stung me there and then I couldn't put my bee suit on because I'd somehow brought all these bees in on my clothes and the pain in the dream was so intense and I always have that feeling whenever I get stung of oh how did I forget that this hurts so bad um so the those two dreams have just left me feeling a little anxious about my uh my sweet little babies but um fingers crossed all is well uh We have a couple of cold days coming up and then some more mild weather. If I'm lucky, I might be able to actually pop open the hives just to check at the candy board and see what they have left on Sunday because it's supposed to be in the 50s and it's supposed to be clear. So fingers crossed. Another quick update. Not a huge amount to say here really you know it's winter there's not much to do beside the usual um and then some of the preparation i can't get done because i just i i can't be outside it's too cold or it's too wet or whatever but um um i had an issue with my chickens where they were kicking out so much of their food and just making such a mess and i have i actually have empty litter pans that i put under the feeders to catch the food but they were knocking out almost all of the food into the the litter pans and I couldn't figure out why they weren't eating it they were just kicking it around well it finally clicked for me last week that um I had been putting like a handful of mixed grains into their feeders mixed in with their usual you know crumble or pellets whichever they get 
because I was trying to encourage them to you know dig in and eat more well that was really stupid because what they were doing is yes they were digging in they were digging through it trying to get those little delicious morsels of grains unless you think that I don't treat my chickens I do they get something some kind of treat every day whether it's um some kind of dried insect or live roaches or fresh greens or vegetables or um, a handful of uh, dried oatmeal or, um, you know, grains, scratch grains. They get some every day. They're just spoiled. So, yes, I don't know if this counts as the chickens outwitting me or me just being really, really dumb. It's hard to say. Um, Speaking of chicken treats real quick, I recently switched from buying very large bags of dried mealworms through Amazon um, from various companies to um, trying out Grublies from Grubly Farms. And I'm sure if you listen to any homesteading podcast, you've probably heard about Grublies because I think they sponsor like a ton of the big ones like Drink and Farm and all that kind of stuff. But um, I d- gave them a go. Grublies basically, what was appealing to me about them? is they are a US business, they grow everything in the US, they process everything in the US, it does not leave the country. And that's what attracted me because the dried mealworms are almost impossible to find having been raised, processed and shipped within the US. Usually what we have over here, it's all coming from China. And as you are probably aware, China doesn't have very good rules or regulations about how they can handle things like that and I do worry about the process that the mealworms are going through and then I also worry about the carbon footprint of having these things shipped over from another country and then shipped all across the US so even though they're a little bit more expensive than mealworms um, I did switch over to grublies I just feed a little bit less of them which is also okay because they have a lot more calcium in them than um Oh, goodness. If you hear any banging, my whippets are walking underneath the desk right now because (laughs) I cannot be alone for even a second. So I apologize about that. But um, yeah, so the grublies, they're higher in calcium than dried mealworms. Um, I think they're equal or slightly higher protein. Um, And the great thing about Grubbly Farms is it is a US based business. Everything is done in the US. And I was really chuffed, actually, because I... Recently, I tried out just one bag to see how my girls liked it. It lasted me about a month. So I decided to sign up on the website and you do, it's like a subscription, right? So you say how much you want and it comes, you know, every month. And there's pretty good options for those of you with ginormous flocks. I think there's a five pound tub you can get. And those of us with smaller flocks, it's like one pound. So I signed up for the subscription and um, yesterday I got a card from Grubbly Farms, from the owners, thanking me with a really cute little um, sticker, um, which says something like, uh, oh, it's treat a cluck somewhere or something like that. I'll take a picture, I'll post it on the Instagram. But um, yes, I thought that was a really nice touch. So Grubbly Farms, thank you. It was sweet of you to put that personal touch in to the people who subscribe and hopefully... Um, my girls will continue to like it. So I feel a little bit better about where that protein and calcium source is coming from. And if you can, I do recommend um, checking Grubbly Farms out. I'll post a link on the website. So this week I am into part two of Edible Gardens and I'm going to try 
not to blow through it too quickly, but if I do end up sounding a little rushed, it's just because this ended up being a much bigger episode than I anticipated when I was doing my notes. There's just so much to say about different herbs. There's so much information about, you know, how to grow them and what they're good for. And so, um, that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with the herbs and then I have a little section on uh, lettuce and salad greens, a little section on leafy greens, which is, you know, turnip, uh, kale, collards. And then right at the end, I just have something about parsnips, which is the only root vegetable that I'm considering growing this year and is a personal favorite of mine. And I just wanted to kind of tack it on. So to get started, I'm going to talk about something. This is a little bit of a cheat. It is not technically a human edible it's more of a feline edible so my first herb is catnip and it is edible or I should say it's safe for humans to consume but the jury's kind of out about how much is safe to consume I found some I'm going to call them woo-woo websites which were very like um you know, homeopathy and all that kind of rubbish, which was basically saying that, oh, it's great for this and this and this and doesn't have any sources, it doesn't have any basis for it and it doesn't have any safe consumption. And then I found some medicinal herb websites which had a bit more information about it, which was more sort of like it's used as a tea. Um, That seems to be the primary means for human consumption, but that too much of it can cause digestive distress in people including stomach cramps but again I couldn't find any really strong science or medical information on on it so I'm going to say if you did want to consume catnip for any reason you're going to have to do a lot more search searching than I did and possibly speak to a doctor or if you know a herbalist um so yes sorry bear with me one second I have a little whippet next to me chewing up a box one second Sorry about that. All right, so catnip. It is, if you're growing it, it's probably because there is a cat in your life or cats that you love and um, you want them to have some fun. And the bonus of catnip, and part of why I included it, is it's a really, really good plant for pollinators. So the basics of catnip, it's, uh, there's a perennial form and an annual. It requires full sun. The harvest season is spring through the summer. It can grow up to about two feet in height and you can start with seeds or transplants. It's completely up to you. If you start with seeds, it's a little tricky because the outer casing of catnip seeds needs to be stratified, which basically means it needs to be slightly damaged to allow growth. And the recommended method that I found was you could scratch it, uh, use some kind of sharp implement to scratch the outside, but it seems like an easier method would be to place the seeds in the freezer overnight, then take them out, put them in a bowl of water for 24 hours, and this is going to break down the tough outer coating. Like with almost all seeds, you're going to need to start them indoors in if you're looking to start kind of now-ish, early spring, or you can seed directly outside once evening temperatures, temperatures are more mild. So we're talking sort of 50 degrees Fahrenheit plus. With transplants, you really don't need anything special. Uh, Catnip is readily um, able to be transplanted. It does very well. But keep in mind that you want to allow a space of about 20 inches between each plant 
Catnip's a member of the mint family, so it spreads a lot and it can actually be quite bushy. And this is true if you start with seeds, you want to thin your seedlings out so that you end up with about 20 inches between each seedling. In terms of how to succeed with catnip, you basically, you don't want to overwater. Catnip prefers well-drained soil and full sun. It will tolerate partial sun and a mix of soil type. So don't panic if you don't have super well-drained soil. It is overall quite a hardy plant like other plants in the mint family. Um, it's moderately resilient to hot and cold weather, but it's going to be more prolific in fertile, damp soils. Uh, damp, not wet. That's a key difference. Um, and something I found interesting is that too much fertilizer can actually decrease the potency of the flowers, which includes their scent. So it's recommended that you fertilize lightly at planting or transplanting, and then just monitor it through the bloom season and only refeed it if you can see that it's struggling. You know, if the leaves are dying back quickly, if it's wilting, if you know that watering is on point, maybe it needs a little boost. If it's raining throughout the growing season, you actually can get away with not watering because too much water is going to kill it very quickly. Quickly, The roots can rot through and so it's better to err on the side of caution. Speaking about caution, uh, catnip's actually invasive in some areas uh, because it readily reseeds. So something that you can do to avoid this, if it's a concern for you or a concern for your area, is you remove the flowers before they have a chance to go to seed. In terms of pollinators, catnip actually attracts a very large number of different pollinator species, but you can look forward to seeing a heavy visitation by bumblebees and honeybees. Of course, I can't talk about catnip without discussing the effect that it has on felines. Now, something I didn't know until I was reading for this episode is that not all cats actually respond to catnip. The sensitivity to catnip is genetic and one third to one half of cats are completely unaffected. It's the chemical, oh Lord, let's hope I pronounce this right, nepetalactone. <laughs> the petalactone that attracts cats with the genetic predisposition and it this includes wild felines such as tigers cats who are affected by it will roll chew eat it rub on it and play with all parts of the plant cats can become playful sleepy hyperactive anxious or even aggressive when on catnip but thankfully the effects usually last about 5 to 15 minutes it is safe for cats to actually eat, but if they have too much of it, it's probably going to upset their tummies and you can look forward to little piles of vomit around your house. You can give it to your cats fresh or dry, though fresh is more potent. So if you have never given your cat fresh catnip before, probably try a little bit at a time and see what happens. My next herb is coriander, which is more commonly known in the US as cilantro. So in England, we call it coriander. And for the longest time, I didn't know that coriander was the same thing as cilantro. And to make it a little bit more confusing is that in the US, coriander often refers to the seeds, which can be consumed as a herb themselves. 
And cilantro often refers to the leaves and the stems of the plant. But where I come from in England and in other parts of Europe, we just, coriander is the whole plant, whether it's the leaves or the seeds, we all just call it coriander. So it took me a little while to figure out what was what. But here's the basic information. It's an annual, it's native to Asia and North Africa. It does best with full sun to partial shade. You harvest during the summer. It can reach a height of three foot and you want a minimal soil depth of about 10 inches. Coriander is popular in many cuisines around the world, although some people find that it tastes soapy. And much like how genes affect whether cats are influenced by catnip, it's a gene that makes some people perceive the aldehydes in coriander as particularly soapy in taste. My sister-in-law is one of them. If there's even a tiny bit of coriander in a dish, she can't eat it because it just tastes like dish soap to her. I personally love coriander because I love Indian food and Indian food uses this herb quite a lot. So, um, and actually when I'm cooking for myself and my husband, I do my own um, curry herb mix and I use a lot of coriander in that. So you can, um, when it comes to getting cilantro, you really need seeds it doesn't transplant well at all and I've actually never found a coriander plant um, to transplant so you're probably just going to have to go ahead and get some seeds for this one you want to start inside four to six weeks before the last spring frost date or you can direct sow one to two weeks before the last spring frost date you don't need to thin the seedlings much, if at all, because coriander has a very short growing season and a relatively short lifespan as well. So just encourage everything to grow as much as it can so you can have a larger harvest. You don't want to overwater. You want to be aware that it's going to favour cooler weather with partial shade and that it will bolt if given too much sun. And bolting is when a plant grows very, very rapidly and then usually flowers and then goes to seed. And when things bolt, they lose a lot of their delicate texture and the flavour can change as well. And sometimes it can be unpalatable. There are varieties of cilantro that have been Uh, created to be a bit more bolt resistant and one of these is santo s-a-n-t-o so that's a variety that you could look for to extend your harvest you can succession plant so sow your seeds wait three to four weeks sow more seeds and so on you can harvest when the plant is about six inches tall Um, that's considered in many time in many ways to be the best time because the leaves are young and they're fresh and the flavor is intense If your plant does bolt, just let it flower. Um, Not only are the flowers good for bees, but they're also edible. And then you can let the flower go to seed and you can collect that seed and store it for the next season. In terms of pollinators, the flowers are white or pink and they actually bloom for long periods and produce quite a lot of nectar, which makes this plant excellent for all different kinds of pollinators. Visitors include honeybees, paper wasps, sweat bees, aphid-eating cyphid flies, and many beneficial wasp species. So if your uh, coriander does bolt, just let it flower and take you know, solace knowing that you are benefiting your pollinator population. 
The next herb I'm going to talk about is one of my very favorites and it is lavender. And I've actually posted on my website, I've shared two Instagram accounts that I would recommend checking out if you love lavender and you love bees. Uh, the first one is Bee Loved Lavender on Instagram. This is another Ohio beekeeper who has a lavender farm and her pictures are incredible. I really enjoy following her journey. We're on a similar um, level, I believe. I think we're both going into our second year or she might be a year ahead of me, but either way, I love reading what she's doing with her bees and I love all the pictures of her lavender and then what she does with the lavender because there's so many things you can do with this one. And then the other Instagram account is Sleepy Bees Lavender Farm, which is another wonderful beekeeper and lavender farmer with so much great information and pictures and products. So I recommend if you're on Instagram, give those two ladies a look. So in terms of lavender, the plant, it's a perennial. It grows um, to a height of 18 inches to about four feet tall and one to two feet wide. Uh, transplants are recommended. The harvest time is summer. It loves sun, so you want full sun for this one. A minimum soil depth needed is about 18 inches. It is suitable for containers, but do look for the compact varieties as they will do better for you. Um, and the description that I found for lavender, if by some miracle you don't know what it looks like, is a smallish shrubby plant with long, thin, grey-green leaves and spires of tiny flowers, which really doesn't capture how lovely this plant is, in my opinion. But that there you are, that's what it looks like. What's really wonderful about lavender is that all parts of it are fragrant from the flowers, the leaves, the stems, everything smells incredible. The flower colors are varied. You can get purple, pastel, pink, white, and the fully open flowers, if you look closely, actually look like tiny orchids. An interesting note is that unopened flowers have the most intense fragrance. And some varieties of lavender have especially long bloom periods and then even have a second bloom late in the season. So this is a bit of a powerhouse plant, in my opinion. You can get a lot of benefit from your lavender. Now, you could start with seeds if you wanted to, but this is a little challenging. The main issue seems to be that cultivars don't always stay true from the seed. So you could get a seed from a cultivar that you really, really enjoy. And then when the seeds actually grow into a plant, it looks like something completely different. Uh, seeds also take a month or more to germinate and they tend to have a pretty shoddy survival rate. So you're not necessarily going to have the best luck. If you are interested in growing from seeds, um, there are guides out there with some tips and tricks. So I'd recommend uh, Googling and getting that information if that's really how you want to start. Otherwise, um, you can get transplants. Lavender is almost always available at various nurseries and cuttings also work very well. So if you know someone who has a lavender plant that you think is particularly attractive, you could ask them if you could take some cuttings. You'll need a little bit of rooting powder and then you'll want to put the cutting into a moist, sandy potting mix. Start the cuttings indoors because they're delicate. They need a little bit of extra help. Within a few weeks, they will have rooted. And at that point, it's safe to move them into their permanent container or move them into the ground. 
how to succeed with lavender you really need a lot of sun so choose a nice sunny spot of your garden and pop them there the soil is best if it's a little alkaline and slightly dry lavender does not like humidity or too much watering so be careful that you're not giving them too much water and also don't let them get overcrowded you want to keep some space around them so that air can circulate freely Lavender can survive winter, but it might need a little help. So if you have particularly cold winters, you could cover the plants. You could mulch heavily around their base. If it's in a container, you can wrap the container or just bring it indoors. For lavender, you really want to keep it pruned. Um, If you snip the tops, you're going to encourage bushier side growth. And if it's an established lavender plant, then prune very early in the spring when the worst of the cold weather and the frost has passed. This is going to encourage new growth. And then again in summer when the peak bloom period is over. To harvest, you can really take the leaves anytime. As I mentioned previously, the flowers are most fragrant just before they open. So that's the best time to harvest them. And you're also going to want to harvest early in the day when the oil, which is what makes it so fragrant, is at its peak. Leaves and flowers can both be dried. Once you have dried them, store them in airtight containers to preserve them long term. There's so many things you can do with dried lavender. I know a lot of people use them in uh, cosmetics and um, to make oils and put them in little sachets and put them in your drawers to keep linens and stuff smelling fresh. There's just so much to do. There's whole books on the subject. I definitely recommend giving them a read or a, a once over. I mean, the possibilities are endless. In terms of pollinators, Lavender has long been associated with honeybees in particular in Europe and especially in France. The sugar concentration of nectar, it has been recorded between 14 to 67%. Lavender honey is golden and readily granulates into small crystals, creating a smooth butter-like texture. Uh, Recommended species for lavender is basically all of them, Uh, but in particular English lavender, which many consider to be the most fragrant, and French lavender. Visitors that you can expect in terms of pollinators are the honeybee, mason bees, small carpenter bees, bumblebees, and both native and non-native wool carder bees. Next up we have mint. Now mint gets a bad rep (laughs) and it's not undeserved um mint spreads like wildfire and a lot of people hate that they find that they put it in the ground it takes over everything and they wish they'd never bought it which is fair enough I love mint um not just because of how fragrant it is but I actually love the fact that it spreads I am a lazy gardener I weed by hand And I've been experimenting with letting weed take over certain beds to see if it can outcompete weeds like dandelions or um, some of the grasses that are really a huge pain in the butt and some other things. And I feel like it does. It can outcompete other weeds. And I also think that it is quite attractive. I love how it smells. And it's actually great for pollinators. So I've included mint here because it's a favourite of mine. 
And for those of you who are worried about it spreading, there are things that you can do to stop it from doing so. So um, obviously, if you have containers, you can put it in a container and then just leave it there. <laughs> so it has no chance of getting into your ground. Another option is you put it in a pot, which you then plant in the ground. So it can this can help prevent the roots from spreading and you can then keep an eye on the tubers that it sends out and cut those back to prevent it from spreading that way. So mint is a perennial, which is great and another reason why I love it. Um, it varies drastically in size depending on the kind of mint. So there are some mints that are very, very small and stay low to the ground. And there are others that are like massively bushy and can get as high as two feet. Transplants or cuttings are recommended. The harvest season is spring right through to fall. It likes full sun to partial shade. You want a minimum soil depth of six to eight inches. And it's very versatile. So mint is uh, used in cosmetics, food, drinks, medicines, toothpaste. There's lots of varieties. It doesn't just have to be mint or spearmint. You can get lavender mint, chocolate mint, lemon balm, and so on. Now, as I said, they're perennials, they're very hardy, and they spread via underground stems, although in my experience, they can also spread by above ground stems or tubes as well. They root all along the length of that stem and will send up new growth. And this is why um, cuttings are so easy to do with these, because you can just cut one of those stems and then root it down and it will send out even more roots along the length. And before you know it, you have a new mint plant. In winter, the plants do die back and they might look like, oh no, it's all gone, but they are alive under the ground and they will come back in the spring. Uh, many varieties will also self-sow if you let them flower. And it's part of this reason that they are considered invasive in some areas. So as I said before, you might want to consider containers or putting them in pots before putting them in the ground. The Bountiful Container, which is the book that I mentioned last week, and it just occurred to me, I didn't mention at the beginning of this episode that I'm basically using the same sources as last week. So the same books, although I will link them again on the website and any additional sources I will be sharing on the website as well. So in the Bountiful Container, which is one of the books I referenced before, I really liked what the authors had to say about where to position mint. So they say, in your container garden, we suggest you grow mint where you can brush against it as you walk past, where you can reach out and touch the plant and smell the scent it leaves on your fingers. And that is a big part of what I love about mint. It's so fragrant. I was experimenting with it in the bed around my pond and that whole area smells incredible. Actually, even the pond water now smells like very slightly minty. <laughs> So in terms of seeds or transplants, you can do seeds like with most things. You would want to start indoors about eight to ten weeks before the last spring frost date. You don't want to sow them too deep, maybe a quarter inch deep. You want to keep the soil moist and quite warm, about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the seedlings will start to emerge within seven to 14 days. Or do the transplants, which is recommended because they're so easy. Uh, most nurseries will have them available or you can take cuttings from a neighbor or friend. For use in containers, keep in mind that the roots 
can take over and they can actually harm other plants. So what I read basically said, if you want to do mint in a container, maybe just get a big container and have all different kinds of varieties of mints in that container. So you don't risk it out competing other plants. It's competing against also aggressive plants, just other varieties of mint. So to succeed with mint, there's really not much you have to do in my experience. Um, I literally took cuttings and just shoved them in the ground in different places and came back and voila, there were plants. So um, there are some things if you want to be a little bit more conscientious than I am, which is, you know, start the plants in spring with a well-balanced fertilizer and then feed again in midsummer. You want to water them evenly and mint can get quite threadbare. I definitely experienced this. So don't be afraid to cut it back to encourage new growth, to give it shape and so on. There are some varieties that don't do as well over winter and so you might consider bringing them in um, or wrapping the container if you went that route. For harvesting you just kind of pick as you go. Whenever you want some mint just go out grab some. If you pinch off the tips you're going to encourage side growth and for drying you will get more fragrance if you take the leaves before the plant flowers. In my experience, and I've only, I believe I have three different types of mint, I'll have to double check, but it does take a little while for a plant to actually start to flower. So you do have quite a lot of time to get those leaves and dry them if you're looking for the most fragrance. Mint flowers can also be dried. And like with a lavender flower, they're more fragrant before they've fully bloomed. So once you see those flowers, just as they're beginning to open up, if that's what you're looking for, take them at that point. However, if you let your mint flower, because not everyone does, I suggest that you let them open. And the reason why is because mint is a wonderful source of nectar for all kinds of pollinators. In fact, what really attracted me to mint is my favorite coffee shop, Artisan Coffee on Canton Road in Akron. <laughs> they have a little garden out the back where you park and they have like um, lavender and roses and around the corner they have, uh, they had tomato plants and a couple of different herbs, including mint. And they let their mint run wild and it grows really, really tall. It's a big bushy variety and it flowers. And one time I was there and it was flowering and that garden was alive with all different kinds of native USB species. And I just sat out there for a while with my phone trying to get pictures so I could run home and identify those because um, it was just incredible. I mean, obviously I saw a couple of different bumblebees. I saw at least one kind of sweat bee. Uh, I saw two bees I've never seen before and I had to run home and I still can't remember. I don't think I identified them. Sadly, a lot of the different native bees look very similar to untrained eyes, but that's what made me think this is what I want. I want to have this kind of activity at my house and that's when I started looking into mint. So let your mint flower if you want to help your local pollinators and if you are okay with letting your plants get large enough to reach that point. Wild field mint, which is Mentha avensis, is one of the few native US species and therefore especially beneficial for our native pollinators. So if you can find that variety, definitely a good one to plant. One of the books I, I referenced as a source is my 100 Plants to Feed the Bees book by the Xerxes Society. 
And they have a great little section about surplus honey production for certain herbs. And this really blew my mind. They say surplus honey production approaching 200 pounds per colony has been documented near commercial mint fields. So that's going to give you an idea of just how good mint is for our beloved honeybees. Mint honey is amber in color and it granulates easy to very small crystals. So it's quite attractive. As I was saying, lots of different pollinators are going to come by. Honeybees, bumblebees, many different beneficial wasp and fly species and countless numbers of native bees. So if you're going to take anything from this, it's that I love mint, bees love mint, go get some mint. I would like to also talk about a Greek myth regarding mint that you might have heard. And it basically goes like this. The Greek god Pluto fell in love with a beautiful nymph named Minth, M-I-N-T-H-E. And Pluto's wife grew jealous of his affection for this nymph and she turned her into a plant. Now the god Pluto was unable to undo his wife's magic, but he gave Minth everlasting sweetness that could not be destroyed even when crushed underfoot. And that's how we got Mint. I thought that so I just wanted to include that because I thought it was an interesting little bit of history there. So the next herb is oregano. I think, what's it, how do Americans say it? Oregano? Oregano, right? Oregano, right. So it's a perennial. It gets about eight to 12 inches tall and wide. Transplants are recommended. You harvest in summer through fall. It prefers full sun. Minimal soil depth of 18 inches. It's a member of the mint family, which I actually didn't know until I started doing this research. It looks and it tastes good, which is a great benefit. And some varieties have such colorful leaves that they're going to really add just a lovely appearance to your garden. And oregano, like many herbs, it's excellent in containers. Now, seeds of oregano can be a little tricky. It hybridizes readily so it's not always clear what you're going to get from your harvested seeds and just as an added kick in the teeth some hybrids produce sterile seeds so it's possible you get seeds from a plant that you really really love and those seeds are all sterile. So transplants are what are recommended and again this is a plant you've probably seen every single spring at your local nursery so you can go on there grab some. Um, For transplants, you want to wait to put outside until the night temps are mild, like 50 degrees plus 55 plus probably better. You're going to want to look for small plants uh, because oregano is a very rapid grower. So if you get a particularly large plant at the garden center and put it in the ground, you're, you're going to probably stunt its growth a little bit from the shock. Whereas if you get a younger plant that hasn't gone into its full growth yet, any kind of setback, it's not going to set it too far back and you're probably going to get a more successful growth later on. You can also do cuttings with other oregano, which is great. And especially if you know someone who has these plants already. But like with a lot of cuttings, start them indoors just to give them a little extra protection before you move them outside. You want them to be fully rooted before you transplant them. Now, oregano prefers dry, mild climates and alkaline soil. And it dislikes cool and rainy weather, which is much like me. So you're going to want to bring it in for winter if it's in a container or mulch it heavily before the first frost. 
don't overwater it and don't let containers sit in standing water. Um, you know, like how you might put a dish under a pot and then you fill the dish with water and you just let the pot suck it up. Don't do that with oregano. Um, it can get root rot and become very unhappy and die. If it's a established plant that has come back for you, prune it early in the season um, to encourage the new spring growth. Now, pests aren't a big issue with oregano. I mean, it could get spider mites and aphids, but generally speaking, it already has to be ailing before pests will move in. So just keep an eye on it. If it starts to look particularly sad, you might want to consider whether you're giving it too much water or if it's not getting enough sun, or maybe you need to offer some kind of um, um, fertilizer. For harvesting, you can really go as often as you want. Um, harvesting is not going to stunt its growth. Like I said, it's a rapid grower and it only encourages new growth when you take from it. So it's like the more you snip, the bushier it's going to get. The leaves are fragrant and they're delicious, whether dry or fresh. And something that's kind of fun that I found is that there are oregano varieties that are ornamental, but they're still edible, although the flavor is less intense. So if you do have some edible, um, I'm sorry, if you have some ornamental varieties, maybe give them a little nibble and see what you think of the taste. In terms of pollinators, this is another great pollinator plant. Um, oregano nectar has some of the highest documented sugar concentration up to about 76%. The honey from oregano is actually famous in Greece and the visitors you can expect to see will be all different kinds of bee species, including our favourites, the honeybee and bumblebees. Next up is rosemary. This is a perennial. It grows one to two foot tall. Transplants or cuttings are recommended. The harvest is in summer. It likes full sun and a minimal soil depth of 18 inches. This is a beautiful and fragrant herb to grow. There are many varieties which come in different shapes. So some grow upright, some are bushes and some actually drape. So the drape in particular can be very attractive in a raised container. Rosemary can even be trained as a topiary, which is way too much work for me, but looks absolutely beautiful if you have the patience to do it, particularly if you um, put it into like a big clay pot out on your porch or deck. The flowers are shades of blue, sometimes white or even pale pink. And rosemary is particularly good when used um, when roasting meats. So uh, growing up, rosemary was used particularly on lamb um, in my household. Now you can grow it from seed. It's kind of a pain though, particularly considering that cuttings are just so much easier. So any kind of transplant you have is probably from a cutting Cuttings are best taken in the early summer when the growth is new. And the big thing with a cutting from rosemary is you don't want to over move it. So once it's rooted, transplant it into its permanent bed or permanent container. Don't put it in a container, then decide you want it in a bigger container and keep moving it like that. It doesn't respond well. You want to use a well-draining potting soil mix with a little lime added at the time of transplanting. Rosemary really prefers dry, sunny conditions. So you're going to want to water carefully. Too much and the roots will rot, causing the plant to die, but too little and the growth will be quite severely stunted. So for your soil, 
Use a well-draining soil that has sand or perlite mixed through it. Um, when you do a transplant, when you transplant it, give it a uh, boost of fertilizer. Liquid seaweed is very recommended for rosemary. And rosemary is actually cool hardy, but it's probably going to have to come in for winter. Um, and some varieties will actually have a second bloom during winter if you bring them inside. So it can make quite an attractive houseplant. You can cut off the foliage at any time, although the newer growth is going to be softer and a bit more um, tasty. Try not to remove more than a quarter of a branch at a time. Um, a little bit more than this, you can risk stunting it. And the leaves are good whether dried or fresh. Rosemary is actually a wonderful honeybee plant resource. It has a sugar concentration in the nectar between 25 to 63%. And the Xerxes book describes the honey from rosemary as clear and water white, which I thought was an interesting, if not very helpful descriptor. The upright varieties of rosemary in particular have blue flowers, which the bees absolutely adore. Um, if I remember correctly, there have been studies about what colours attract bees and blue seems to be the overall favourite colour. You're going to see all different kinds of bee species, including native bees, come to your rosemary, but you can especially um, expect to see quite a lot of honeybees and a number of different bumblebee species. Next up, we have sage. This is another perennial. It grows one to three feet tall. Transplants recommended. The harvest is in summer and then again in the fall. It likes full sun and a minimal soil depth of eight inches. It is attractive and fragrant. In mid to late summer, um, it might send up flower stalks in colors ranging from pink, purple, blue, and even white, which look absolutely beautiful and bees go nuts for. A little tidbit that I found is that the flowers can be harvested and then infused in a mild vinegar like white wine vinegar to make a delicious and magenta flowered um, magenta colored concoction which I thought was fun and something I might try actually. Now seeds tend to germinate poorly and they grow very slow so get clippings. Um, for transplants as well there tends to be a pretty good selection at various nurseries and this is another plant where you're going to want to add a little sand or perlite to the soil to encourage good drainage around the roots. You want a nice sunny spot and you don't want to plant it with really water loving plants because then no one's going to be happy. So that's just something to keep in mind. You can prune back established plants in early spring to encourage new growth. And just keep in mind that sage can become woody and tough after a few seasons. So you might want to propagate it before it reaches that point. When you're harvesting, you can take the whole branch or just a few leaves at a time and it's good fresh or dry. I wanted to add a quick note on Russian sage. This is an ornamental sage variety not edible but it's excellent for bees and you might see it listed as a plant for pollinator gardens um, it's particularly beloved of honeybees bumblebees and wool carder bees much like edible sage it prefers a dry climate it loves the sun but unlike edible sage it can grow to a whopping five feet in height 
it has absolutely beautiful blue to purple flowers and it makes a really stunning addition to your garden and your local bees will thank you. So now we have thyme. This is a perennial, it's six to, six to 15 inches tall and wide. You can do seeds or transplants. The harvest is in summer. It likes full sun and a minimum soil depth of six inches. It's a really good container plant because it has relatively shallow rooting. There are different varieties available. It's drought tolerant, it's very easy to grow and you can overwinter it with a light mulching. For seeds, start indoors early spring with a light potting soil. Cover the seeds with a very light sifting of sand and keep them warm. They should germinate in one to two weeks and then you can thin the seedlings as needed. Once they're a few inches tall, they should be safe to transplant, assuming that your risk of frost has passed for the year. When you, um, If you go out and you get transplants or... Um, Yes, if you go out and you get transplants, the roots are quite fine. So handle them very, very carefully. And I would definitely check for any root bound pots at the garden center before you buy. This is always a good rule of thumb. You know, you don't want root bound plants. I have quote unquote rescued root bound plants before and had okay growth. But as a general rule, you don't want that. And for anyone who's not completely clear about what I mean when I say root bound if you pick up the pot and you turn it over to where the little drainage holes are on the bottom if you can see that there are roots tightly packed in like pressed up against those holes sometimes they're even coming out that plant has needed a larger pot for a while and it's not going to do as well for you as one who has not reached that state with thyme, you do not want to overwater. Some symptoms of this include blackening and drooping leaves. Um, the well-draining soil is essential, so add that sand, add some perlite. It's also prone to something called crown rot if you water it from above, so always water around the base of the plant. To overwinter it in very cold areas, you can wrap the container and cover the plant or just bring it inside. You can take stems as needed or wanted throughout the blooming season um, or the growing season. The fragrant oil is at its peak in the morning and just before the plant flowers. If you pinch the flowers off as they develop, that's going to prolong the bloom period. However, you might want to consider letting the flowers um, open because this is a good pollinator plant and the flowers need to be open for our pollinators to get in there get their pollen and get their nectar when you're cutting the stem take about a third to a half this is going to stimulate new growth and thyme is good dry or fresh honey from thyme is well known in greece and the hundred plants to feed the bees book by the Xerxes Society said that um, creeping thyme species can actually be a really good substitute for lawn grass which I am definitely going to look into because I want to get rid of my lawn. The average sugar concentration in nectar is 27 to 45 percent. The honey that is produced from thyme is amber in color and minty smelling and it's a favorite of bumblebees and honeybees yay all right so we're almost an hour in and I just finished the herbs okay so now it's um 
lettuce and salad greens. Now, full disclosure, I have never been good at growing lettuce or salad greens. Um, I, I really, really struggled with slugs when I tried the first time. And then when I tried the second time, when we moved from Rhode Island to Georgia, I everything that I grew in Georgia basically rotted. It got some kind of fungus or mildew or whatever from the humidity and I just, I couldn't keep anything alive. So I'm hoping to tackle this challenge again and let's say succeed perhaps, that would be nice. So in terms of lettuce and salad greens, these are annuals. They grow about eight to 10 inches tall. You can start with seeds or transplants. They like full sun to partial shade. You harvest spring through early summer and then there's a second harvest in the fall. Minimum soil depth should be about six inches. They are really good for containers, but they're also good in the ground. Incredibly, there is over 800 varieties of lettuce available in the US alone. So you could spend a lot of time flipping through seed catalogs. Now, generally speaking, there are four categories of lettuce that give you an idea of how the plant will grow and how it will look at full size. Full size. I'm sorry. This has been a long, long chat and I probably need more caffeine. Um, you want to consider these categories when you are looking at your garden and deciding what space you have, how you want things to look. So of the four categories, let's start with romaine, which is um, probably familiar to almost everyone listening. So these are tight heads of long, tall, crisp leaves. It's a very upright growing lettuce. Then you have butter heads, which are rosettes of tender leaves with a small loose head at the center. So much more round. Then you have crisp heads, which is a large tight ball inside looser leaves. A really famous example would be iceberg lettuce. And then loose leaf, which is no head. It's just layers of individual leaves that grow in an overall rounded shape. Loose leaves would be the best option for containers unless you have particularly large containers. And loose leaf are my personal favorite because they're a cut and come again variety, which is what it sounds like. You cut the leaves as needed, the plant regrows, you come back again. So it's instead of having to harvest all at once, you can harvest as needed. Now, if you wanted to go with seeds, start indoors about four to five weeks before the last spring frost date. And make sure that you do harden off seedlings before you move them outside. If you want to direct sow into the ground, um, probably wait until night temperatures are mild. So maybe 50 degrees Fahrenheit. The seeds will germinate at temps as low as 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which is good for those of us who don't want to put up grow lights. And for a steady supply of lettuce, do several sowings two to three weeks apart. You want to thin the seedlings so that there's about six inches of space between each of them. And for an autumn harvest, sow the seeds in late summer after first chilling the seeds and then plant them in the evening so that the soil isn't too hot when they go in the ground. Now, transplants will save you a fair amount of work and they're usually available at nurseries 
but your variety is going to be limited. Um, there's no way you're going to find even close to 800 varieties of lettuce at your average nursery. Um, they mainly stick with the popular ones, but they are a good place to start. And you want to get those transplants when they're quite small. They're in the early growth. You don't want anything that is very tall or leggy, or if the um, if it's more of a rounded lettuce, if it's already grown quite large and kind of started to open up, that's probably not going to transplant as well. Now, in terms of success with lettuce, what I've always found challenging is that you want to keep the soil evenly moist because if the soil dries out, lettuce can actually become quite bitter. And it's a cool, damp environment that lettuce really, really loves. And hot weather is going to lead to bolting. And this very rapid growth is going to make the plant lose its flavor. And it's also going to get tough. Now, trying to balance the right amount of sun and moisture is kind of a challenge with lettuce. If it does get too much sun and it bolts, One of your options is you can let it flower and then collect the seeds. Or if it bolts and it's too tough for you, but you have livestock um, like chickens, pigs, um, I'm going to assume goats, things like that, you can just give it to them. Uh, They don't care if it's a bit tough. They're going to enjoy it and it's a good treat for them. Lots and lots of water content there. So really what you're looking for is you're looking to grow your plants in a cooler, a little bit more shady part of the garden that still is getting some sun. And the benefit of doing a container for lettuce and salad greens is that you can move that container. So maybe you have it on one side of the deck so it can get some of that morning sun. But as the day gets increasingly warm or increasingly hot, you can move it into the shade to prevent bolting. But again, you're trying to keep the soil moist and relatively cool. And what loves moist soil? Slugs. And that was my first issue that I ever had. Now, what you can do in terms of preventatives, and these are preventatives are all bee friendly. Um, I don't use anything in my garden that could potentially harm any kind of pollinator species. So, What I found as preventatives are um, copper strips that you can put around your container. And you can also use, um, because I know putting copper strips around a raised bed or whatever, that's not really practical, is you can make a garlic solution, like a little small spritzer bottle, crush up some garlic, put it in with water, shake it up and spritz all around the base of the plant and a little bit onto the soil. This is going to deter slugs. And you can do the same thing with Epsom salts. You can either dilute them in water and spritz or you can sprinkle them around the plants, not too close to the stem. And this is also going to help keep slugs away or kill any slugs that get close. And with most like with most pests, if you do find slugs, you know, pick them off, drop them into a like a cup of soapy water to kill them and then dump it somewhere else. Now, in terms of harvesting, like I mentioned before, loose leaf are cut and come again. So you take the leaves as you want them and you take from the outside in. But for other varieties of lettuce, you take the whole head of lettuce at a time. And I wanted to just go over a couple of my favorite uh, lettuces and these are almost all cut and come agains because these just happen to be my favorites so the first one is arugula 
also known as rocket it's sharp it's peppery i also think it looks really attractive it's kind of a darker green it's a cut and come again variety and if it bolts the leaves are still edible and don't taste much different and the flowers are edible too so that's pretty fun the next one would be endive and escarole which are very closely related these are kind of bitter they have kind of a biting taste so not everyone likes them Endive is a uh, frilly leaves with a long white stem, whereas escarole basically looks like a broad-leaved um, endive. They both actually belong to the chicory family, which is probably why they have such a, um, a biting taste. Next would be uh, lamb's lettuce. This is quite popular in Europe. It has a very mild flavour and it's quite hardy. So it's good to sow in the fall to harvest in early winter. So if you want some lovely tender lettuce in the early winter time, lamb's lettuce might be a good option for you. Then we have radicchio, um, which is you know that brilliant red lettuce that you've probably seen. It has a tart taste. It's crisp and biting and Something to keep in mind with this one is that there are some varieties that you let them grow into summer and then you cut them back and it's the regrowth that grows in red for a um, late summer, early fall harvest. But then there are other varieties that grow immediately with the red coloration. So just double check that. I'd also like to make a, a note on mescaline seed mixes that you've probably seen at the store. And there's a common misconception that this is a, is a kind of lettuce, like a mescaline lettuce. That's not the case. Mescaline seed mixes are just a mix of lettuce and salad greens. Usually things like arugula, dandelion, cress, endive, and so on. So it's literally just a mix of different salad greens. That's it. Next up, we have leafy greens. These are annuals. They grow four to 24 inches tall. You can start with seeds or transplants. They like full sun to partial shade. You harvest in late spring through the winter. Minimum soil is recommended as eight inches. They are easy to grow. You get quite a fast crop. They are very good in containers. They're also good in the ground. They are very high in vitamins and to sum up leafy greens, because there's different varieties, it's basically a cool season vegetable grown for its leaves. Now, if you're starting with seeds, start indoors three to four weeks before the last spring frost date, or direct sow them when the night temps are consistently above freezing. Just make sure you plant them only about a quarter of an inch deep and prepare to thin aggressively as they grow because they're going to fill out quickly and they need the space. If you do transplant, you're going to save a lot of time. Green transplant really, really well. And there's a number of varieties that you'll probably find at your local nursery or garden center. In terms of succeeding with greens, you want a lot of water and steady fertilizing because we're trying to encourage rapid growth. Fish emulsion is a really good option for greens because you're looking for that high nitrogen content because unlike with things like say a tomato where we want fruit growth, with the greens we want leaf growth so we want that high nitrogen. You want to keep them growing fast because the leaves are more tender when they're growing quickly and of course like with lettuce slugs can be an issue so like I said, there's some options there with uh, copper strips, 
Epsom salts or garlic, those things might help you. In terms of harvesting, you have a couple of options. So the first one is you might have seen at the supermarket and the grocery store uh, baby varieties of greens, so like baby kale, baby collards. And these are just really, really young, small leaves. It's just as the plant is young. So you can definitely harvest when they are that size. And for a beautiful salad of tender baby leaves, um, they are quite popular for a reason. Or you can let the plant keep growing and get the full size leaves, which you've I'm sure you've also seen those at the grocery store. If you feel like the outer leaves of the plant are getting very large, they seem overgrown or they're getting kind of tough and you don't want to use them. Of course, you can compost them or give them to your livestock. Um, Most greens are an incredible treat for chickens and I'm sure other kinds of livestock. And I love greens because they are a staple food for tortoises. So if you have a tortoise like I do, uh, even some of those tough leaves, a tortoise is going to have no problem with and it still has a good vitamin content for them. With kale and collard greens, you actually want to harvest from the the crown, which is the center of the plant, to stimulate new growth. So some options for greens, things that I am considering and that are also very popular. The first one I want to mention is Swiss chard. This is related to beets and you can kind of see it. Uh, They're tall, upright leaves on thick, succulent stems. Both the leaves and the stalks are edible and Swiss chard is a real vitamin powerhouse. A nice thing about it as well is it's going to keep growing from spring until the first frost and it looks and tastes good. Um, Some varieties even have hot pink, yellow or purple stems. Next up is collard greens, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with. These are famous in the south of the US um, or I guess I should say southern US states. These are very large plants with blue green leaves. They are closely related to kale, but they tolerate heat better, which is probably why they're so popular in southern states. They will still grow well in cool weather and a summer planting will result in a bountiful fall harvest. Some people actually think it tastes better after it's been through a a frost. So you can either harvest before your first frost or let it get touched by frost and then harvest. Finally, I am going to mention kale. This is very frilly and quite dark green. It's attractive enough as a plant that there are ornamental varieties that come in like showy colors like pink or lavender. It's delicious cooked or raw and you can harvest it when the leaves are about the size of your hand or when they're just a few inches tall for like baby kale. Kale and collards are um, what I rely on during the winter to feed my tortoise. So I really want to try and grow them successfully. Um, I'm hoping that um, I can succeed in that at least to get that full harvest because then I can kind of go into the winter with a little bit more in my fridge for my tortoise. Finally, (laughs) can you tell I'm tired? (laughs) Finally, we get to parsnips. Now, I am talking about parsnips because I know there are more popular root vegetables like carrots, but every Thanksgiving for the last, I'm not sure how many years, I have been hosting. And as I've mentioned before, I mean, obviously I'm British. My husband is from England and his 
parents are as well. So um, we like a lot of the same foods. And in England, roast parsnips are a staple of roast dinners, which are a Sunday meal. And so for Thanksgiving, I basically treat it like a Sunday roast dinner in England. And I do like the turkey with roast parsnips and roast potatoes and uh, uh, lemon herb carrots and um, all that kind of good stuff. Now, parsnips, every time I go to the store to get them in Thanksgiving, I get really annoyed by how small the bag is and how expensive they are compared to everything else. So I thought I'm going to grow them. I will grow them myself. I'll save money. Well, I might save money, but I probably will get some gray hairs because it turns out that the reason parsnips are so expensive is they're not the easiest thing to grow. So let's run down what parsnips are. So they're annuals. They like full sun to partial shade. They like loamy or sandy soil. You can only grow from seeds. Transplants are out and they're considered stubborn and hard to get going. So let's talk about the seeds. The big issue with parsnips is that the seeds have to be fresh. And what this basically means is they are best when harvested during the previous season. So if you're buying them in a pack and you don't know exactly when they were harvested, your chances of them successfully germinating are middle of the road to poor. Seeds also need a minimum temp of 46 degrees Fahrenheit to germinate and any lower than that and they're prone to just rotting in the soil. So if you're going to sow these seeds, you really want to wait until the soil temps are a steady 50 to 54 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, if you have a ground thermometer, use that. Otherwise, it seems like a good rule of thumb is like when you can put your hand onto your garden bed and it feels comfortably warm beneath your hand that's probably the time to sow so for some of us that's relatively late into the spring and to make things worse the seeds have a very long germination period so you're waiting a while to sow the seeds and then you're going to be waiting a long time to see any growth once you do start to see growth you're going to want to thin those seedlings until they're six to ten inches apart Another consideration with parsnips is I've read some that says that if you have like um, little stones or pebbles or any kind of um, roots, anything disruptive as that parsnip tap root, which is what we eat, starts to come down, it can fork. And then this is a problem because you end up with less of the vegetable. So it's probably best to kind of go over your soil carefully, make sure you don't have any grit, gravel, any big roots reading through, like really try and make the soil as um, even as possible so that you are hopefully going to get the parsnip tap root growing directly downwards. Now, in terms of harvesting, you can harvest parsnip when it's quite small and it's actually very tender when it's miniature size like this it looks good it's fun to serve it tastes good I mean why not so really what you're looking for is you're waiting until the leaves on the surface have fully died back and then you can harvest it as a mini vegetable or leave it in the ground and the reason you might want to leave it in the ground is that A lot of people think that parsnips actually taste sweeter if they are in the ground during the first frost of the season. So something a lot of people will do is they'll leave them in the ground 
and they will pre-loosen the soil around the taproot in advance of the frost so that they can eventually harvest more easily. And you can either um, wait until the frost has passed and then dig them up. That, like, that's probably going to be, what, early winter? Or leave them in the ground over the winter, just cover them with a thick layer of mulch. And then in the spring, as soon as the ground thaws, you want to take them all out immediately. So a couple of other points to note with this parsnip, this like troublesome taproot, which is really delicious, is don't overwater them. Keep the weeds away. You don't want uh, roots getting down in there, conflicting plants, stealing their nutrients. And um, keep this soil consistently moist. You might want to consider a thin layer of mulch to help trap in moisture during their growing. Now, in terms of cooking parsnips, you can find all kinds of recipes online about how to roast them. You can roast them with honey, um, sugar, all kinds of stuff. Now, one thing that people argue about is do you pre-boil your parsnips or do you put them straight to roast? In my opinion, you should pre-boil them. Um, I think they cook better. They have a a more tender center and a crispier exterior if you pre-boil. The trick is it's kind of like a flash boil. You don't want them to get mushy. You don't want them to start falling apart or cracking. You are literally popping them in just long enough, a couple of minutes to get slightly tender. Then you can coat them in olive oil, salt, pepper, whatever you're using, set them in a pan and roast them in the oven. When they're golden in color, they are ready and they're absolutely delicious. I like to let a couple of them get super crispy and then my husband and I fight over who gets the crispy ones. So parsnips, gonna give them a try, time allowing. I really think that it's fun. It sounds like it's gonna be a huge challenge, but why the hell not, right? So I am finally done. (laughs) Thank you so much for sticking with me this week. I know there was a lot to discuss. And um, next episode will be part three of Edible Gardens, where I'm talking about the three sisters method, uh, which is corn, beans and squash. Um, I'm also going to be talking about um, pasture plants and why they might be something of interest to you. And I'm trying to remember what the other one was. Hmm. It's either going to come back to me or not at all. Bah, 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 bah. Oh, never mind. It, it will it will come back to me or it won't. But either way, oh, sunflowers. That's right, because I wanted to get some sunflowers going and I figured why not talk about it. So next week, final episode in the series. It will be about Three Sisters Method, pasture plants and sunflowers. As always... If you want to check me out on social media, you can find me at Homestead Hens and Honey on Instagram and Facebook, Homestead Hens on Twitter and Tumblr, and Homestead Hens and Honey, all one word, at gmail.com. There is, uh, in the episode description, there's going to be a link to my website. I post a rundown of everything I've discussed. So if you miss anything or because this is just huge amounts of information you want to go back and read it you can find all that on my website I also will be listing the books again that I used for this episode as well as any other sources I used such as um, the Instagrammer accounts that I mentioned for Lavender Farms 
or um, information on the gene that makes people taste, some people taste cilantro as soap. So thank you so much for listening, for reading, for adding me on social media, for liking my posts. Just, I really appreciate you guys so much. Um, I have so enjoyed digging into all of this plant information. I haven't done anything beyond just shaping my beds, weeding, putting a couple of new plants in for so long that I forgot how much I love vegetable gardening um, and I'm quite excited to try again this year um, and now I have my little chappy my who's my male whippet who's very very handsome he's so handsome and he is sitting at my feet right now staring out the window at a squirrel who is very unwisely sitting and taunting him on my deck so I think I'm gonna have to go let my dogs out So please visit me again in two weeks when I will have another episode where I blather on at you about growing various things that you can eat or like enjoy to look at or in the case of pasture plants, things that might be a good replacement for your lawn if you're like me and you want to be rid of it. So thank you again for listening and reaching out to me. I love to hear from you guys. As always, remember hug your hands, and then wash your hands. Cheers.